The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, hey, when you first come to it, uh, Numbers chapter 15 seems a, a bit out of place. We've just had four chapters of narrative, and now all of a sudden there's this mashup of, of seemingly random laws uh, mixed in with a weird story about a Sabbath breaker and, and then this uh, bit about wearing tassels. Um, it almost feels like a, a junk drawer chapter, it, the, the kind of chapter that leads itself well to uh, skimming, in your Bible reading plan, if you know what I'm talking about. But it, listen, it's really not that at all. Um, in fact, in God's sovereign design, Numbers 15 doesn't belong in Leviticus. <laughs> it's exactly where God wants it to be. And, and we're going to see how it fits this morning. In fact, believe it or not, we're actually going to see how Numbers 15 is relevant to our lives. But to see how it fits, you, you first have to consider the, the literary context, which is just a, another way of saying we, we need to think about where we've been in the book of Numbers. Numbers 11 through 14 have all, they've been all about how God's people have rejected God's provision and therefore rejected Him. God has brought them out of Egypt. He's made a covenant with them. He's carried them this far. He's provided everything that they need. They're on the cusp, actually, of entering into the promised land, and yet they've complained. Last week in Numbers 13, the, the scouts came back doubting God, but all but two of them anyway. Remember, and they spread the, the, the bad report. They were ready to stone Joshua and Caleb from, for uh, dissenting from the majority verdict that was laid down. They, they wanted to elect new leadership, turn this car around, and head it back to Egypt. That's what they were ready to do last week. Uh, Moses and Aaron were on their faces, <laughs> interceding for the people because God was ready to wipe them out and start over. God responds to their prayer in Numbers 14, verse 21. God says, I won't wipe them out, but none of the adults of this generation are going to make it into the promised land. Instead, they're going to die in the wilderness. Everyone 20, 20 years and, and older, for 40 years, God says, you're going to wander in the wilderness until you die, and then I'll lead your children into the land. Now listen, when, when we read all of that, we typically have one of a few different responses. You know, I can remember when I was a brand new Christian and I remember reading through the Old Testament for the very first time and, and reading passages like this and thinking, you morons. <laughs> I mean, how stupid can you, what's wrong with you? That's what I remember. That's what I remember thinking. See, in my pride, <laughs> I saw myself as above the Israelites in the wilderness. Uh, and then I lived the Christian life for a little while. And uh, I, I realized more about the nature of indwelling sin in my life, and how despite my best intentions, I still sinned. Despite all that God had done for me, I still couldn't live the life that I was supposed to. And it humbled me. I saw myself with the Israelites in the wilderness. But then listen, there's, there's, a, there's a third response that can come to, to Christians and non-Christians to reading passages in the Bible like Numbers 11 through 14, and, and it's this. Um, if they can't make it, how on earth will I ever be able to? It's the response of discouragement, of dejection even, sometimes even despair. You ever felt anything like that in your life? 
It's a thought process that, that sounds something like this. How could God ever save a loser like me? I am such a screw up. I, I believe in Jesus, but look at my life. How am I ever going to make it into heaven? I'm a lost cause. Or for the non-Christian, um, it might sound like, boy, I am, I am so incredibly messed up. Look at all these Christians. They seem to have it all together. I am a complete mess up. I mean, sure, I hear God is a God of love, but if you knew half the stuff I've done, let alone the thoughts that go through my head, I'm beyond saving. No way God could reconcile somebody like me to myself. How could he? Well, listen, the, the answer to these questions and others like it is grace. It's grace. And that's why Numbers 15 is in the Bible. It's why it's right here in the Bible. And it might be exactly what you need to hear right here this morning. Here's what we're going to see from this text as we consider God's grace in the wilderness. Number one, we're going to see something of God's gracious commitment to His people. Secondly, we're going to see something of God's gracious approach to sin. But then we'll also see something about the limits of God's grace. And then it ends with a call to remember and obey in the last paragraph of the chapter. Turn your copy of the scripture to Numbers 15 if you haven't already. Numbers 15 opens with an incredible statement by God. I mean, after all the complaining, after all the doubting, after God saying this generation is going to die in the wilderness, and then after trying to go into the promised land on their own, remember that part last week? At the end of chapter 14 and being defeated, Numbers 15 verse 1 opens with this, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving you. He doesn't say if. He says when. Wow. I mean, right after all of that in Numbers 14, what does God affirm? What, what does He say and show us? Nothing less than His gracious commitment to His people. Now, someone in here is thinking... Uh, you call that grace? <laughs> right? Because verses 1 and 2 don't apply to the adult wilderness generation, do they? They're still going to die, and they do. No, this is only for their children. How can that be grace, someone asks? Well, let's not forget the definition of grace. And let's not forget that we don't get to define it ourselves. <laughs> Biblically, grace is God's people getting what they don't deserve. What did all of God's people deserve, young and old? Death. How do we know that? Well, because God said so back in Numbers 14, verse 12, before Moses interceded. I will strike them with pestilence and disherit them. He's like, I'm going to wipe them all out start again with you, Moses. That God will, will take the younger generation into the promised land is accounted for only by His grace. Them getting... What they don't deserve. Well, that's not fair, someone might argue. No, what would be fair, though, is what? According to God's standard for fairness, what would be fair is for them to all die in the wilderness. Instead, in His grace, He takes the younger generation on. What we see here, then, in this first section of Numbers 15, is God's gracious commitment to His people. And as we read on, we get into all this talk about the sacrifices. 
All right, it's that, that section that you're probably thinking when, when Megan was reading it a little bit ago, you're probably thinking, why are we reading this right now? It's long, it's involved, what's going on here, right? This stuff is pretty foreign to our modern ears and senses, but something to understand is that Israel's sacrifices served a few different purposes, a few different functions. Some of their, some of their sacrifices, probably the ones that we're most familiar with, uh, had to do with atonement for sin. And we're going to talk about some of that here in just a little bit. But there were also what can be called fellowship sacrifices or offerings, as well as first fruit offerings. Those two are what we have here in this first section. Verses 3 through 16 are all about fellowship sacrifices or table sacrifices, as they're sometimes called. These are sacrifices or offerings that accompanied the other sacrifices that were being offered. And there's two main things to note about these sacrifices. First, the items that were used. In such sacrifices, the, these items that were used, listen, they're the items of a settled people. Flour. Oil. Wine. These are repeated multiple times in the text. All three are not primary products taken from nature like a ram or a goat or a dove. No, it takes grinding to make flour. It takes a process to make oil. It takes time to make wine. None of these items can be manufactured on the go. The implication here then is that a people living at peace, living a peaceful agrarian lifestyle with time and space to produce such items. It also implies abundance. In the land that God is giving his people, there will be plenty of flour, plenty of oil, plenty of wine. So much so that offering these things will not be some heavy burden. It's, just a, it's merely a way of life. Now again, these sacrifices are not for atonement. They're fellowship offerings offered alongside the other sacrifices. This is the second main thing here to understand. Did you notice five times in the, in verse six, in the first verse... Sorry, five times in the first 16 verses. We, we read of this phrase, the pleasing aroma to the Lord. The pleasing aroma to the Lord. Mmm, a pleasing aroma. See, these sacrifices were to be offered in the fire of the altar, the smoke of which ascended up into the air, just like the, the, the delightful aromas of dinner cooking in your kitchen. Or the amazing smells of a backyard barbecue. The aroma of these sacrifices goes up to the Lord. It's pleasing to Him. It's almost as if the Lord Himself is participating in the meal. That's the sense of the fellowship offerings. They were offerings required to maintain, but also remind the people of their fellowship with their very present God. And this is astoundingly gracious when we read of it on the heels of chapter 14. See, God doesn't just, God doesn't just forgive His people and then do what we, what we sometimes do when somebody wrongs us, you know, and kind of give them the cold shoulder. You know what I'm talking about. Somebody wrongs you and, and you forgive them, right? But the atmosphere of the relationship is now like the atmosphere inside of a freezer, okay? Um, God doesn't do that. God doesn't restore His people into a cold and distant relationship. There was a future for Israel, one of intimate fellowship with the Lord their God. After the fellowship offerings then in verses 17 through 21, we're told of the first fruits offering. 
Although more technically, we should call it the first dough offering. Look at verse 17 again. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a a loaf as a contribution, like a contribution from the threshing floor. So shall your pre- so shall you present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. Here again we see the promise of a settled people. Now think of think of all anybody anybody make bread in here? Okay, a lot of you. I'm, I might hit you up a little bit for some of that. Um, think of all that is required for making homemade bread in their in their day: fields, grain. Harvest, rain, the harvest and the grinding, homes with ovens, time to bake. All of this is built in here. It's like God saying, hey, when you come into the land that I'm going to give you, you're not going to be making bricks without straw like you did back in Egypt. You're going to be making bread from your fields and the ovens of your homes. And when you do, each time you do, what, was this to be daily or weekly or seasonally? We're not sure. But with each new batch, the first of the dough was to be brought to the Lord. It was a built-in way for them to remember that everything they have is from the Lord. Every time they made bread, they had a built-in reminder of the one from whom their daily bread came. The offering was therefore simultaneously an offer of thanksgiving and a reminder of God's gracious provision. You know, this ought to cause us to, to think a little bit about our first fruit offerings to the Lord. Specifically, maybe how we give of our finances to the Lord through the local church even. How, how we give to Him of our first fruits. We give to Him first. Not the leftovers. The, the Israelites weren't like over here eating all their bread and then being like, oh, we've got some crumbs over here a little bit. Le- oh, sorry, we ate it all this time. And, and then bringing whatever they had left to the Lord. No, they gave of the first to the Lord. It's the same for us and how we give of our offerings to the Lord. It's not like paying a bill. It's an offering of thanksgiving. We're to do it cheerfully. And it's simultaneously a reminder of God's gracious provision to us. Everything we have comes from Him too. One last thing to notice in these first 16 verses is how God commands these sacrifices by both the Israelites and the non-Israelites sojourning with him. Did you catch that part? Look at verse 13. It says, Every native Israelite shall do these things in this way, in offering a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger is sojourning with you, or anyone is living permanently among you, and he wishes to offer a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, he shall do as you do. For the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generations, and you and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. One law and one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. This language regarding the inclusion of the sojourner gets repeated a couple more times in the rest of the chapter. And and what what we're to hear in this is first an echo backwards to the Abrahamic promise in Genesis where God promised His people many generations ago now, what? To, To make them into a great nation and to give them a promised land. And then lastly, through them, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. 
Now, all three parts of that promise have their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. But all three parts are present here, too, in a more temporal way. God is fulfilling his promise. The people, the land, the blessing to all. By including the sojourning stranger in the fellowship offerings, there's also an echo forward to Galatians 3.28, where the Apostle Paul will write, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And we put all this together. What we see in the first 16 verses of Numbers 15 it is not merely God's gracious commitment to his people, but his gracious commitment to his promise. In fact, God's gracious commitment to his people is based on, it flows out of his gracious commitment to his promise all the way back to Genesis and Abraham. And listen, it's the same promise that you and I stand in, in the fulfillment of today. Listen, if you're a Christian, if you believe and belong to Jesus, it's not because of your effort-driven commitment to him, It's because of His gracious commitment to you. You don't die for Him. He died for you. You don't rise to new life for for Him. He rose to new life for you. He's promised to forgive all your sins, past, present, and future, all by His grace. And just to be clear, you don't deserve that. But it comes to you by way of his gracious commitment to you, his gracious commitment to his people. And by his gracious commitment to you, listen, he's promised that no one's ever going to snatch you from his hand. He's promised that he's never going to cast you out. He's promised he's going to finish the work in you that he's begun. He's promised that nothing's ever going to separate you from his love. And he's promised that when you die, you're going to live forever with him. And if he returns first, you've got nothing to worry about except what you're going to do with all the leftover Kleenex that you haven't used. Now listen, some of you hear that. And I know what you're thinking. I've sat with you in pastoral conversations. I know what some of you are thinking when you hear that. You're thinking, that sounds great for everyone else. But it's not true for me. I can't believe it's true for me. There's no way. I am such a complete and utter failure. You don't understand. See, your reaction to hearing the good news of the gospel is the same as your reaction to hearing Numbers 11 through 14 read. If they can't make it, how on earth will I ever be able to? I am so sinful. Well, the answer is God's gracious approach to sin. There's two paragraphs here in our chapter under uh, on the topic of unintentional sin. Do you see them? The first, verses 22 through 26, is all about unintentional corporate sin. And the second, verses 27 through 29, is all about unintentional individual sin. And in both instances, the priest is able to offer a sacrifice making, here's an important theological term, atonement for their sin. And they shall be forgiven, it says. 
You see it in verse 25 in the corporate case, atonement. You see it in verse 28 for the individual case. Now, atonement, you might see, is formed from three words or three parts. At one meant. And so we have at one, or the making of one, and the suffix meant, which is used to form a noun out of the adjectives. Just a little lesson for you there, right? So we have the making of one, or the reconciling as one. That's the idea. When we're talking about atonement, We're talking about how man is reconciled to God. Here's why that's important. Our God does not take sin lightly. I mean, you you read through the book of Numbers, right? God does not take sin lightly. Sin separates us from God. It causes division with us in God. And God doesn't merely forgive and forget. No, atonement must be made. Blood must be shed. For according to Leviticus and taught again in the New Testament book of Hebrews, as I think it's chapter 9 verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's what's going on with these sacrifices in this section. And again, we should note that unintentional sins are in focus. That's an interesting phrase. Unintentional sin. <laughs> Isn't it great, first off, that God has a category For unintentional sin. Have you ever thought about that? That he is gracious towards unintentional sin. I mean, think of God's Old Testament people here. There's a lot of rules to keep track of in this thing. You know what I'm saying? Uh, A a lot of things to do and not do. To touch and not touch. To move in the right way, in the right order. And there could be a fear that could take hold of a person. A fear that somehow I'm I'm going to mess something up. Not intentionally, but inadvertently. And that would be the end of them, you know? Not so, says God. He provides a way to be reconciled to Him in such cases, whether it was the whole congregation or just one person. Atonement could be made for unintentional sin. It's still sin, and He doesn't take it lightly at all. And yet, He graciously provided a way for it to be dealt with. And there's comfort for us in hearing that too, isn't there? As as those who belong to Jesus, one of the things that we learn in the New Testament is that Jesus made atonement for us once and for all. He was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He died for our sins, including our unintentional ones. And so if you're a new Christian, or still trying to figure it out Christian, there's a comfort here in knowing God's not going to strike you down for something you didn't even yet know was wrong. Additionally, if there's some kind of unique pain or suffering in your life, you don't have to go on a witch hunt trying to uncover some unconfessed sin that you're not even aware of. God's not punishing you for a sin that you didn't even realize you committed. He has a category and provides atonement for your sin through Jesus, even unintentional sin in your life. Now, that's in no way an excuse to stay ignorant of what God commands. Listen, a true Christian wants to learn and grow and know all that God commands because we desire, our heart has been regenerating, there's a desire in us to live in obedience and glorifying our Lord. But when you sin unintentionally, 
He's not like a, a heavenly referee just staring you down, you know, just waiting for you to mess up, to throw his divine flag and blow his heavenly whistle and eject you from the game. Listen, you might still be sitting here this morning thinking, well, okay, sure. But my sins aren't unintentional per se. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I know right from wrong. But I still do wrong sometimes. Uh, I don't want to, but dang it, I lose my temper sometimes still. Uh, I'm working on it, but... Lust is still a battle in, in my life, you know. I, I, I still lack self-control in, in certain situations. I still get jealous. Ah, greed is still lurking in me sometimes, right? I, I, I get bitter. I, I still doubt, even though I know I shouldn't. And I get crippled by fear sometimes. And once in a while, something becomes too important in my life other than God. And I'm selfish. Listen, if that's you... <laughs> Welcome to being human. And Christ's atoning work means God continues in a gracious approach to your sin so long as you're seeking to walk in repentance. Seeking to change, pursuing repentance and change. See, one way to understand unintentional sin here in the text is to contrast it with what comes next. Look at verse 30, same paragraph. But the person who does anything with a high hand, the NIV translates that, sins defiantly. The, the person who sins defiantly, whether he's a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. There's no atonement in cases like that, is there? I mean, I've read it a couple times, can't find any other spot there where it's like, okay, now we do the atonement thing and you get forgiven. No, you're cut off. And a reasonable conclusion we can draw from this text then is that unintentional sin is contrasted here with high-handed defiant sin. Blatant sin. Sin that says, you know, I know what God's word says, uh, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. Can't tell me no, can't tell me what to do or, or not to do. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much the boss of me, okay? And so, listen, I know what's best. God, who cares what he says? That's sinning with a high hand. That's defiantly disobeying God, deliberately rejecting him, willfully and brazenly disregarding his will without any remorse. Flaunting it instead. In the very face of God. Now put a circle around all that and call it defiant sin. Alright? Outside of that then, in contrast to that then, is unintentional sin. Inadvertent sin. Sin that isn't defiant. It's something you, you don't want to do, but you, you do it. There's a, a wrestling inside of you that goes on. Paul calls it in Romans chapter 7, the wrestling of the flesh. Or you want to do what's right, but you, you can't all the time. You want to do what's good, but you don't every time. You, you want to kill it. You're striving to it, but you still do it sometimes. But when you do, and you realize it, maybe, 
Maybe pretty quick. Hopefully quicker and quicker as we mature as Christians. But maybe after a bit. Maybe not until somebody points it out to you. But you hate it when you realize that it's sin. And you you even have godly sorrow over it. Like a spiritual brokenness deep inside of you for the sin. And then you confess it to God and to others. And you seek and strive to walk in repentance, which means turning from that sin and turning to God and following after Him instead of after your own heart. Friends, if we say we have no sin, we're liars. And the truth is not in us, John says in 1 John chapter 1. But if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. How? By His atonement for our sin on the cross. God is gracious in His approach to your sin. So trust in Jesus. You say, oh, how could that be true for me? Trust in Jesus. You say, oh, but you don't know what I've done. or Well, the thoughts in my head. Trust in Jesus. You say, oh, how could he ever possibly reconcile me to himself? Trust in Jesus. He really did pay it all. And he's gracious in his approach to your sin. And so we've seen something about God's gracious commitment to His people and His gracious approach to your sin. Church, our God is incredibly gracious. Next, however, God's Word here does elaborate on the limits of God's grace. We've already begun talking about this by looking at verses 30 and 31 and the warning against the defiant, high-handed sin. Beginning in verse 32, then we get an example Of such sin. That's the story of the man who's breaking the Sabbath, which evidently was not unintentional. Okay, if it was, God, who is consistent with what we just read, would have would not have doled out the punishment that he does here. This wasn't a man who had never been taught the fourth commandment. Oh, we're supposed to we're supposed to rest on the seventh day? I didn't realize. It wasn't anything like that. In fact, in Exodus thirty five, not too long ago chronologically, right, within the last year or so. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people, all of them together. And he said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Well, back in Numbers 15 then, we've got a man doing the exact opposite. The exact opposite of what God commanded. It's a high-handed sin. It's a defiant sin. He's gathering sticks, thereby doing work on the Sabbath. Additionally, we presume that he's gathering sticks in order to build a fire. A very defiant act when you think about it. I mean, everyone's going to see it. You can't hide a fire. There's smoke, right? I mean, it's like, hmm, I wonder if somebody's got a fire going over there. I, I, I bet they do. There's smoke, right? He's essentially parading his disobedience around brazenly saying that God's good law are of no matter to him whatsoever. And he's put to death in accordance with God's law. 
in accordance with God's warning in Exodus 35, which he ignored, he's put to death in accordance with his defiant sin. God takes sin very seriously. The Lord said to Moses, the man should be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. All the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Church, there's limits to God's grace. He will not be mocked. To live in defiance to Him, in complete and like cocky disregard of Him in this life will cost you eternal life. There's an eternity of difference between defiant sin and other sin. In fact, if we consider the New Testament and what's known as the last step of church discipline, excommunication, where someone is put out of the church and treated as an unbeliever, what we realize when we understand repentance and the possibility of reconciliation through the atoning work of Christ, what we realize is the only sin that ultimately leads to excommunication is persistent defiance. A refusal to humble yourself before the Lord and others and agree with God's word that your sin is sin and humbly plead to Him for forgiveness. Listen, if you've never done that before, if you've been living your entire life in defiance to God, or, or you, you've gotten off track, right? And, and you're in a place of, of now living in unrepentant sin. Maybe not flaunting it publicly like the Sabbath breaker here in our text, but secretly flaunting it. You know it's wrong, but you haven't cared. You're brazenly saying with your actions, God's law are a no matter to me. Here's what you need to hear. There are limits to God's grace. But you haven't reached them yet if you turn. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The promised land. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? 
So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Today, if you hear his voice, turn. It's not too late. Anyone can get in on this. I mean, God is gracious in his approach to your sin. It's not too late, but when he returns, it will be. There are limits to God's grace. Now, if that's where chapter 15 ended, it'd be rather abrupt. It'd be a little sober, right? Um, It'd be a little bit of sober ending like that with the Sabbath breaker being stoned to death. Uh, But there's one more paragraph, if you're looking at your Bibles, about tassels. (laughs) The Lord tells Moses to tell the people to make tassels on on the corners of their clothing. Seems a little odd to us at first until we understand the purpose. Look at verse 39, chapter 15. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. What was the purpose of the tassels? To cause God's people to remember and obey. There was a cord of blue in them, the same color used in the tabernacle, associating the people with the worshiping happening in the tabernacle. These blue-corded tassels signify that the Israelites were, in fact, themselves a kingdom of priests. Each and every one of them. And when they got dressed, when they looked down, when they saw each other, the tassels were a call to remember all the commandments of the Lord and they were a call to obedience. A reminder to not follow after their own heart like everything in culture wants to tell you to do. But instead, follow the Lord. A reminder to not presume upon the grace of God, but to remember and do all of His commandments and be holy. But listen, don't miss the last line there in verse 41. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. I don't know if you realize it or not, but these are the exact same words from the preamble to the Ten Commandments that God gave to the people in His covenant back in Exodus chapter 20. But here, there's a repeated emphasis, a reassuring of His covenant, a reassuring of His commitment to them. You see, the tassels weren't merely a call to remember and obey God's commands. They were a reminder of who they were and whose they were. A reminder of who the Lord is. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. 
They were his people. You starting to see how this chapter fits? He is the Lord who brought them out of the land of Egypt to be their God. He desires relationship with them. He is their God. They are His people. They are to live lives holy to Him. And yet, God's people don't have what it takes. In and of themselves, they are imperfect. And yet, God is radically, graciously committed to His people. He's gracious in His approach to their sin. And yes, there are limits to His grace, but He is their God. And out of the reassuring love of his commitment to them, they're to wear the tassels and see the tassels and remember him and his grace to them. Remember his commands and obey, glorifying him, their gracious God. It's the same for you and me as Christians today. If you're here and you're a Christian, the the Lord has saved you by the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus to belong to Him, to be your God. He's entered into a covenant with you. He desires a relationship with you. He is your God, your good, good Father in heaven. And you're to live for Him. Like all your life is to glorify Him. And yet, you don't have what it takes. You're not perfect. There's still indwelling sin in your life. The kind of sin and struggles that make you want to say to yourself, or sometimes out loud, I am a complete failure. You don't have to hide that. Do you know why? Because God is graciously committed to you. And He has shown it by sending Jesus for you. And through Jesus and His cross... God is gracious in His approach to your sin. If we confess our sin, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we don't presume upon His grace. There are limits. We don't follow our hearts. Instead, we remember and we repent and we follow Jesus. We obey. We remember Jesus and his commitment to us. We hear him say, I am the Lord your God. I am. And listen, we don't have tassels to wear, um, but we have this table. (laughs) And every week when we come to it, we remember God's gracious commitment to us. We remember his gracious approach to our sin. We remember the limits of His grace. It's, it's only for those who have trusted in Jesus and are walking in repentance of sin, this table is. We remember the covenant that He's made with us. We remember that He is our God and we are His people. We remember all He's done for us and that we're already counted as holy because of Jesus. We remember that our identity is not screw up, or loser, or failure, or lost cause, but sons and daughters. We remember that we are His kingdom of priests, rescued, redeemed, forgiven, and restored. 
Remember all that He is, all that He's commanded us to. We're strengthened by His grace to leave here obeying Him, living lives, glorifying Him. And next week we do it all over again. And again, and again, and again. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.